So I think we could all agree that there is a grave need to parent and to educate and to guide our children. I think that's undeniable. You know, if we bring children into this world, implicitly, we're accepting upon ourselves the responsibility to raise happy, healthy, uh, responsible, productive adults. I think that's something that we all agree upon. And of course, as we know, it's not the easiest task in the world. And as Jews, we have an additional responsibility, not only to raise happy, healthy, successful, responsible, productive adults, but in addition, we have responsibility as Jews to convey the principles and the values and the beliefs of our religion and our tradition to our children. So that makes it even a little bit more important and difficult. But in addition, I think it does offer us a benefit as Jews to take some of the lessons that we receive in the Torah and use them as guidelines to uh, how to educate our children. Now, I want to make a disclaimer before we begin. I'm by no means an expert in parenting. uh, And I think everything that we're going to talk about tonight and the things that probably, you know, I need to work on to become a better parent. But the majority of what we're going to be talking about is not my own insights. Uh, it's going to be ideas that are found in the Torah and specifically ones that were formulated and espoused by my grandfather, Rabbi Shlomo Walby, who was renowned as one of the premier pedagogues in the Jewish world in the 20th century. Uh, he wrote books on the subject and he was consulted from all over the world and he was renowned as an expert. And he had some principles that he would always talk about. And what I tried to do in this presentation, is to distill them down to 10 core principles that really cover a lot of ground uh, in our parenting. So it's going to be the 10 commandments of Jewish parenting, and uh, hopefully if we learn the principles, we could apply them with our own children and our own parenting. Okay, so the first of the 10 commandments is thou shall parent. And I think this is maybe uh, self-understood, but it's not necessarily always practiced. And that's the idea that If you don't parent your children, no one will. Uh, Children need, children are born and they need guidelines. And if you don't guide them and you don't instruct them and you don't parent effectively, it's quite likely that they won't grow in a, in a, in a, in a way, in a manner that is desirous, uh, for adults. We can hope that everything that we want to impart in our children, they're going to pick up on their own. And in fact, there's actually a mitzvah in the Torah to parent. And the Talmud and the book of Kiddushin tells us that there's there's responsibilities, there's laws that a parent is obligated to teach their child. For example, number one, to teach them Torah. Of course, it starts even earlier, to circumcise the child. The first mitzvah a child does a week into their life, parents are responsible for that. But in addition, it's not just parenting them as a child. There's a mitzvah, to marry off the child which means that the responsibilities that we have to our children don't end when they're young or when they become a teenager or an adolescence. It's really to guide them in a way that they could kind of go live on their own to get them married and even teach them a craft, uh, teach them how to swim. These are all things that are found in the Talmud 2,000 years ago, codified responsibilities that a parent needs to, as obligated to do with respect to how they educate and train their children for life. Now, it's interesting. It does mention to teach them how to swim. And if you would think about it, like of all the things in the world, it doesn't say baseball. It doesn't say soccer. It says to teach them how to swim. 
And amongst all those other things like teach them a, a, a craft or a, a, how to make a living, Torah, how to do a trade, etc. And I think what it means is, and the way it's framed in the Talmud, it's not just to teach them how to swim, to give them swimming lessons. It's to teach them because invariably a child will find themselves at one point in life shoved by someone probably into the pool and they'll need to know how to swim. And if they don't swim, they could imperil their life. So I think what it means, it's not just to teach them how to swim because the Torah is just interested that we have a lot of really good swimmers. It's to teach them how to deal with any potential perils or dangers or pitfalls that life presents them. And thus, swimming, it's a term for anything that the child may encounter. So I think in, in today's world, where there's, I don't know, there's there's drugs, there's alcohol, there's all kinds of mistakes that children unfortunately make. And as parents, we are tasked with guiding them to make sure that they could navigate all these potential areas of pitfalls effectively. Now, I think part of parenting, we think, is that is results-oriented. So my grandfather was very clear about this, and he mentioned it uh, several times, that we cannot be assured that our input will yield a specific output. It's not in our hands where the child goes. That's in God's hands. It's in the child's hands. Our job is to do the best job we can. And specifically, like the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. And the way I like to present this is there was a book uh, written in the 80s called The Loser's Game. And this book uh, posited an interesting thing that there's two kinds of games. There's games which are winner's games, and there's loser's games. And the author found, while studying tennis, that there's uh, professional tennis and there's amateur tennis. And he found that in professional tennis, 80% of the points were scored by one player beating the other player, either by having a great serve or a great spin or some sort of tactic. It's a winner's game. Whereas in amateur tennis, 80% of the points were scored by an error, by a blunder, by hitting the ball over the fence or hitting the ball uh, outside of the court or missing the shot entirely. And thus, even though the rules of amateur tennis and professional tennis are the same, but in actuality, they're different games. One's a winner's game where the, where the way to beat the op- opponent is by winning, by doing something crafty to win, whereas amateur tennis is a loser's game. It's to avoid losing. The guy who loses the, the least, who loses the fewest points, that's the one who's going to win the game. And I think this is broadly applicable to a lot of different areas in life. And I think with parenting specifically, it's a loser's game, which means that you're not trying to actively put the child in a way that they're going to succeed. Of course, you want them to succeed, but your real goal is to do no harm. And if you do no harm, the child on their own will flourish. And I think this is a pretty radical statement, but I actually found that my grandfather, blessed memory, he said these words precisely. He says, someone could be the greatest expert in pedagogy. They could be read all books and, and studied all the uh, scholarly research and really to be an expert. And with respect to the results, it doesn't matter at all. The results are in the child's hand. The results are in the Almighty's hand. And the parent or the educator or the, or the teacher in, in school they really, we don't have a say in the end result. So if so, ask my grandfather, why do you need expert parents? Why do you need to be trained as a parent or as a teacher? And the answer is, is because otherwise, if the parent or the educator is not trained, well, then they're going to mess up. They're going to lose, so to speak. But ultimately, 
What we're trying to achieve as parents is to allow the inner potential and greatness of our child to shine forth and to remove all the potential obstacles that could inhibit that. So that's the first one. Thou shalt parent. Okay, so number two, thou shalt parent with a long-term view. There's two ways to run a company, to try to be focused on short-term results or to be focused on long-term results. Uh, and I think the same thing applies for parenting. Parenting, we could get caught up in the weeds. We could get caught up in the forest and, and, and all the trees and all the details and all the minutia and not really see the big picture. And I think that the fundamental element of parenting is long-term. And in fact, the Hebrew word for parenting is chenoch. And the first time it appears in the Torah, I think, is very illustrative about what parenting really is. The first time it appears is in Genesis chapter 14, verse 14. Abraham's nephew, Lot, is kidnapped, and Abraham mobilizes an army to go save, to go rescue Lot. And the Hebrew word for that is vayarak eschanichav. Abraham mobilized his charges, his students, his army. So the word chanichav is the word, the first time in the Torah, the word chenoch, or a variant of that word chinuch appears. Now, what does that mean? So Rashi explains in his commentary that the word chinuch is starting an individual, a person, or a vessel into the future role that they're going to play. It means you're preparing it for its role in the future. Similarly, with people, or like a child, if you're doing chinuch, you're preparing it not for the results right now, but for how it's going to be in the future. I would say that it's not like uh, programming a computer because all the results are instantaneous. It's more like training an apprentice. You're initiating the student or the child on the path that they're going to be on and their own once they actually leave your charge. And I think that's really it revolutionizes uh, what parenting is. It's and certainly about education in general. It's not about trying to give them as much information as possible. It's about to set them on a path where they, on their own, given what they were, how they were trained, how they were educated, how they had the chinuch, how they were guided to be when they are now adults. And I think this is maybe the biggest blunder or, or philosophical mistake that parents make is that they think about immediate results. And sometimes, of course, you have to deal with immediate, immediate realities, but Frequently, the immediate results, they fly in the face of the long-term interests and the long-term goals. And I think what the Torah is telling us here is that the fundamental premise of chinuch is long-term. My grandfather used to say that parenting is like, when, it's like, it's like lighting a candle. If you have a candle, there's one lit candle and there's one unlit candle. And all you do is you take the lit candle, which is the parents, and you touch it to the unlit candle and you just leave it there and that's parenting. But then you withdraw the original candle and then the other candle lights on its own. And just like lighting a candle, you're not going to stay there the whole time unless it's Havdalah. Havdalah, you keep it together. You have, if, you have two, if you have two candles. But really what you're trying to do is to light it but then to separate them. And that's what parenting is. You're trying to light the flame of the child. You're trying to inspire the child in a way that they can have vitality and success in whatever future endeavor on their own. If we look at the Shema, there's three paragraphs of the Shema. First one comes from Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 11, and then Numbers 15. So there's two verses in the Shema that talk about parenting. 
In the first paragraph, it says, Vishinantam Levanecha, you should teach Torah to your children. Vidibartamam, you should speak in the words of Torah. And the second paragraph, it says, Vilimatam Osam Espanechem, teach the words of Torah to your children. Lidaberbam, to speak in it. So this sounds like very similar verses. And the Ramban in his commentary says something, again, along these lines. The beginning of Chinuch, of education, is Vishinantam Lovanecha, teach your children. But ultimately, the objective is not to you be constantly teaching your children, rather, Vilimatam Osmanechem, teach them to your children, Lidaberbam, so that they may speak on it on their own once you are removed from the picture. Again, it's not about now. What can I teach him now? It's about what can I teach him now that will prime them for future success once you're out of the picture, once they're an adult, once they're on their own, they can flourish even without you. My grandfather was very opposed to spanking children. Now today, it's anathema. No one spanks children anywhere. You do that, you might get arrested, right? But it used to be, not so long ago, when I was in school, it was actually quite common. Uh, I, we got the, like, the tail end of educators' uh, aggression. But my grandfather was very opposed uh, to this. In fact, uh, there was a, a whole magazine that was published uh, with my grandfather's teachings about not spanking kids. And someone told me, I met someone in yeshiva, he told me, he says that his Rebbe, his teacher in yeshiva, would actually take that magazine and roll it up and use that to spank the kids. <laughs> That's what he would use. He would use the Jewish Observer, roll it up and use that to say, like, no, I spanked my kids. But I think, you know, with respect to punishment in general, corporal punishment certainly, but punishment in general, it's very effective if you want to achieve immediate results. Like if you want even kid, the kid doesn't want to eat the meatballs, right? So what do you do? You could, if you smack them, if you scream at them, if you intimidate them, if you threaten them, they'll eat it. And you know what? You'll look like, wow, I'm, I'm a genius. I managed a way to finagle their compliance to eat the meatballs. And you know what? If your goal as a parent is to get them to eat meatballs today, you're a grandmaster. But because parenting is about the long-term goals and long-term you spank your kids or you're too aggressive, I'm not saying never spank your kids, that's not my decision to make, but if, 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 if you use as a, a first order of business aggression and the, those kinds of intimidation and punishment and threats and, and the like, it's quite likely your children will be very resentful about that. And then when crunch time comes, they're teenagers and they get bigger than you, and it doesn't work, those theories, and the, the, those, those policies don't even work anymore. What now? If there's pent-up resentment, you're probably going to be less effective as a parent when the time for parenting and for discourse between parent and child is most necessary. And that's, again, an example of thinking long-term. My grandfather used to always uh, couch this in the following example. He would say that there's two ways to build something grand. You could either build or you could plant. You could build a huge building, and you lay brick after brick after brick until you have a nice, beautiful edifice. And you could also plant seed and water it and tend to it and watch it grow on its own. And he says parenting is a mixture of these two. There's building, which is more rigid, which is more structured, which is more, I would say, short-term. Focus on the things that are, are, are present. Focus on the things that are necessary right now to make sure that the child doesn't grow too awry. But then there's also thinking to the future. If you plant a seed in the ground, you might not see any results for months and maybe even years. And even when you do see results, it's a little sapling. And the sapling grows up to kind of a little bit of a feeble small tree. But eventually, 
it can have strong roots and become a massive cedar tree that's really shining as a skyscraper. And thus, part of our parenting has to be thinking towards the future. And in fact, he was one to say that your goal as a parent is not the way the child is today or tomorrow or next semester or even in an elementary school. As a parent, you have to constantly be thinking, how will this child be when this child is 30 years old, when they're a full adult? And if that's your calculus, then it changes your thinking. It changes, you have to think, okay, what can I do today? Or what should I avoid today to ensure that the child will flourish, not when they're a teenager, but when they're 30? And what foundations can I instill today? And what ideals can I implant today that maybe will take time to germinate and to develop? And I won't see any immediate results, but ultimately it will, it will pay back uh, grand dividends in the larger scale many, many years down the road. Uh, my grandfather would always advise that child, you have a small child, ask you, first of all, ask you ask questions, you, your job is to answer them, always, which is he would talk about this very uh, strongly. But in addition, he would say, it's your job as a parent to instill faith in your child. And the way he suggested to do it is to just to say things in a way that really, they really don't have an immediate impression right now. But you're kind of planting a seed that will hopefully grow and blossom over time. And he would even suggest that tell your child like about just how the Almighty is involved in the world. You're walking with your child and say, look, look at your hands. Your hands are swinging. Isn't that neat that your hands are swinging even though you're not planning on doing it because the Almighty makes you all balanced so you don't tip over? And you just say it to your child, like, yeah, that's cool. But really what you're doing is you're planting a seed in the child's deep in the in the uh, inner sanctums of their heart of to connect them with the fact that, oh, the Almighty exists and even though we can't see him, he loves us and he takes care of us and makes this world so awesome and so delicious and so wonderful. And that, and of course, that might not have immediate uh, byproducts, but over the long time, over the long term, it will grow into something fantastic. Now, what is the key to ensure that we have a long-term horizon, and that our parenting is targeted in a way that will be successful in the long term? I think that goes into uh, number three, which is thou shall individualize thy parenting. Parenting has to be tailored to the individual nature of the child. We just had Pesach. On Pesach, of course, we read about the four sons. There's four different kinds of children that each have to be approached in a different way. There's no such a thing as this cookie-cutter parenting. Just do X, Y, and Z. Tell me what to do. I do it. I follow the orders, and, I, and I'm done. No. Every child is, is different. Every child is unique, and there's different types of children, and they ask different types of questions. And thus, if you're going to to really speak to their heart, you have to speak in a way that is befitting who they, who they are. And part of our children's inherent makeup is inflexible. Uh, the Talmud famously tells us in the book of Shabbos on page 156a that someone who's born in the astrological sign of Madim, of Mars, is going to be a bloodshedder, which is a way of saying... I remember when I was a child, there was always a few kids who loved dismembering daddy long legs one at a time. And like for the rest of us, we're like, oh, we can't touch that. But it means there's some kids that like have an inherent, this is what the Talmud says, 
Some kids have, have like a joy from bloodshed. However, there's four options. They could be a butcher. They could be a mohel. They could be a physician. What's the last one? A shochet. Okay. So there's, there's multiple ways for, the, for, them to, for them to exhibit their character. If, if you have a child who is like a wild animal and loves to s- jump around and it, ADD and whatever – your job is not to turn them into a docile child who only wants to read books because you're actually – you're conflicting with their inherent makeup. You have to find a way to channel their existing character towards the goal. And this – again, this is where it gets difficult because if you want the child to succeed long term, you try to find a strategy and tactics for parenting that child that don't conflict with who they are. So you're not constantly butting heads with inherent physiology in the child. Because if you do that, it's not going to work. It might work short term, won't work long term. Instead, you have to think of, a, of ways to treat each child individually and that way it'll click with them and they'll be able to thrive long term. There is a verse in the book of Proverbs in chapter 22, Chanoch Lanar Alpi Darko. Educate the youngster as per their way. And then it concludes, Gam Kiyaskin Lo Yasur Mimena. So that also when he gets old, he won't depart it. This is our thesis. You have to tailor the education to the child so that when they get old, they won't depart it. There is some grace period. If you want to go against the child's inherent makeup, you might have some, there might be some room for you to run. And it'll look like you're successful. Because you know what? The kid's towing the line. But here we're told, educate the child as per their inherent makeup so that when they get old, they don't depart it. And the only way to do that, the only way to ensure that there's continuity and perpetuity in the education that we infuse in our children is if we do it in a way that's tailored to their individual makeup and not conflicting with it. Commandment number four. Thou shall love thy child and express it. So I think this is a fundamental principle of parenting. And that is we have to love our children, but we also have to express it. The Talmud tells us in the book of Sanhedrin, page 107b, that there's a way for us to deal with our children. And that is, Yemin mekarevet v'smol docha, which means in English, the right brings close, the left pushes away. The idea being is that you could be, you could treat your children with love or with distance, but you should always prefer, you should use your more dominant hand, the right hand should bring close and the left hand should push away. That's what the Talmud says. The story goes that there was an educator that went to Rabbi Eliashev. Rabbi Eliashev passed away in 2012. He was the greatest rabbi in Israel. And the, chi- the p- educator said to him, how, he, he got a new position, and he asked the great rabbi, how do I treat my charges? What do I do? What do I tell them? Or how, what, what, how do I relate to them? And he said, there's three rules. Yemin mekareves, the right hand brings close. Yemin mekareves, yemin mekareves. He says, that's the only three rules. That you have to use the right hand, the dominant hand, to, to give him positive love, loving relationship. 
But then this, this, this educator asked the great rabbi, but wait a minute, doesn't the Talmud say also small docha that the left hand you should push away? He says, yeah, every 50 years you can push the kid away. Every 50 years, that's okay. Once in 50 years. And uh, my grandfather would talk about this all the time. He says, it used to be that we were able to educate our children with a more uh, rigid and harsh kind of way, with a more inflexible form of parenting. Today, it doesn't work. And therefore, I think if we try it, we might have success in the short term, but it's going to alienate our children, which is, of course, the saddest thing. And at the time where the child needs the parent the most, they're not going to have that close feeling, and that's going to enable them to have uh, to form a plan to navigate future crises. So, so what does that mean? What does it mean to love your child? So I think first thing, and this is probably something we're all guilty of, it means to give them attention. Uh, and to give them attention, even if it's something really interesting on Instagram or on Twitter or on Facebook, that is really captivating. And I think this is something – I'm talking to myself here because I think I'm guilty as charged. I think we're probably all guilty. Uh, it's our generation's flaw that, you know, when your parent, your child is there but your phone is also there, the child obviously should have priority over the phone. And additionally, I think it means also loving your child. It means to just have fun, just play with your child and just – Play ball with your child, you know, throw footballs to your child. I think that's, that, that's actually a key to fostering the kind of relationship that's going to, uh, it's going to give you the, the capital, the social capital to be able to influence them, uh, in the future. The verse tells us that Abraham, when he went to, uh, sacrifice Isaac, he saddled his own donkey. Now, Abraham, we read elsewhere, had lots of servants and lots of people who could have done that work of saddling the, the donkey. So why did Abraham do it? So Rashi tells us, Ahava mekalteles es hashura. Love corrupts the order. Which means, yes, of course, Abraham, it's not befitting of Abraham. He's a hundred and some odd years old. And he has so many people working for him. It's not befitting for him to be the one to saddle the donkey. But because he was so consumed with love of God and wanted to do something... It, it corrupts the order. I think that applies to our children. Sometimes the kid demands or kid asks or kid requests of something that, that's really not right. It's not the order. The order is that it doesn't work like that. But because we love them, we say, you know what? Here's an extra ice cream. Yeah, everyone got one. So what? Here's one. I love you so much. And here you, here you get one. On the house. Or this is uh, one of my policies. It's supper time. The child says, I'm full. Five minutes later, they're in pajamas in bed. Oh, I'm starving. My parents hate me. Give me some food, right? I think it happens in every home. So what do you do? So you say, no, I'm sorry. I said, I warned you. And I said very clearly, this is the last offer. The restaurant's closed. Come back tomorrow morning. That's one way to do it. Maybe that, that's right. That, that's the order. But sometimes you say, you know what? Love corrupts the order. You say, you know what? Okay, I'll give you, I'll give you a chance. Here, come to the kitchen. You love them so much, do things that even aren't okay, but that demonstrate that you love them and you're willing to do things that are not technically right because really, of course, the deal was that he has to go to bed, but so what? Okay, number five, thou shalt boost thy child's self-esteem. So I think this is a little bit broader than just self-esteem. I think that a parent or parents generally don't tend to realize the power that they have over their children. Whatever you tell your child, that is true. Unless they find out that you're a fraud and then you lose everything. Uh, there was a great uh, Calvin and Hobbes. 
his father, if you don't know Calvin and Hobbes, it's a comic. But his father, every once in a while, will tell him the most outrageous, outlandish things. And the child actually buys it, hook, line, and sinker. You know, and he's like asking, uh, there's one I remember, he said to him, well, why do old, Calvin asked his dad, why do old pictures are all black and white? So his father tells him, no, 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 they're, they're color pictures, it's just the world was black and white. He says, wait a minute, but, but what about old paintings, they're color? He says, no, 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 the world was black and white, but in the 1930s it turned color. So the paintings turned color. He's like, oh, wait, but so if, if so, why does the, why did the pictures turn color in the 1930s as well remember i told you they're color pictures it's just they're color pictures of the black and white world and the kid the kid buys everything and we know that this this we could do this with our children uh and we shouldn't abuse it of course uh because it'll come back to bite us but i think it's also a very powerful tool that we have in our arsenal we tell the kids whatever we tell them and they buy it a hundred percent and therefore we tell them you know what you're an imbecile they buy it we tell them you're a genius they buy it. So we have to be very careful with what we tell them to make sure that it is in line with what we want them to believe. Uh, there's one example for this. My, my dad was a smoker for 36 years, and he loved cigarettes, to be honest. He loved it. It was, it was amazing. But then he quit. And my mother, she had a mantra that she would say all the time. She would say, none of our children are going to smoke. They saw how difficult it was for Abba, for my father, to quit. They're not going to smoke. And I remember thinking like, just wait a minute. He actually loves smoking. He talked to him today. He says, worst thing he ever did was quit smoking. But then I once overheard my younger brother saying, I'm never going to smoke. I saw how hard it was for Abba to quit smoking. And he said like, exactly what his mother told him because that, that becomes fact. That becomes objective fact that is unimpeachable. And I think this really applies in so many different ways. Whatever we tell them, they, they, they are and they become as well. So, for example, my parents had a tactic I think it was genius. They would always say, our children don't lie. So, if I come and I complain to my mom about my brother, uh, he beat me up, I didn't, he's lying. Sorry. Our children don't lie. That's what she said. And even when she knew that one of us was lying, she would still say, our children don't lie. And I think it was actually a stroke of genius. Because if you're told, you don't lie. And that's just fact. First of all, if you do lie, you feel terrible. And you're like, well, I'm not going to disappoint my mom again, number one. But also, like, you actually start believing it and you start abiding by it. And in addition, I actually found that the Rambam says this exact thing. The Rambam says, the Mishnah tells us in chapter one of Perker Avos, it says, we should be like Aaron. Aaron was someone who loved peace and pursued peace and taught people Torah. That's what the Mishnah says. Chapter 1, Mishnah 12, Perkyavos. Says the Rambam, what does it mean? What did, what did Aaron do to teach people Torah? He would befriend the sinners. And he would go over to them and talk to them and say, oh, I want to talk to you about Torah and kind of treat them as a peer. And he knew these people were sinners. But these people see the great Aaron coming over to them. And he's like, ah, oh, if he knew what I really had in my heart, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be, be my friend. And by doing that, by Aaron believing in these people, they would actually up their game and conform to the standard that Aaron set for them. And I think that's an, an example of that. People aspire to be what other people already consider them to be. So if someone says, hey, you know, you are X, Y, or Z, and you're not, you say, oh, no, I have to live up to that. I don't want to disappoint them. So with, with parents, 
as parents, we could use this very, very effectively by trying to kind of convey the world reality the way we see it in a way that we want our children to start living by. And thus we tell them, oh, you're a liar. You're, you're a thief and things like that. Okay. We're just reinforcing that characteristic. And that's what they're going to actually be because we're telling them what they are and they are going to live up to our expectations. And I think that there's also a, so just how this plays in. Uh, self-esteem, like we tell them, you know, you're a great guy, you have all the ability, whatever you, whatever you want to do, you can do, there's no task that's beyond you, anything you set your mind to accomplish, like things like that, they actually buy it and they could do it. But I think there's also a flip side of this. Uh, there's a book called Mindset, written by a woman named, uh, I think her name is uh, Dweck, is her name? Anyhow, it's about this, that there's two, there's, there's certain kinds of mindsets. And uh, in her book, she writes, that there's a growth mindset and there's a capabilities mindset. You want to be in the growth mindset, which means you tell your child, oh, you're a genius. That may not be the best tactic because now they're a genius. So anything that may contend with their reality, they don't want to go near. If they're, if they're really not a genius or they are a genius, but there's, they're bad at math, then Okay, if I try to do this, if I try to succeed in this area and I fail, then I'm, I, I lose everything. My whole self-esteem is hinges on the fact that I am what I've been told I am and now I'm not. So they'll be very hesitant to fail because failure right, is going to disrupt their self-perception that the parent gave them. That's why it's, it's a little bit dangerous, a little volatile. And therefore, you want to try to focus on growth as opposed to capabilities. Tell them whatever – you could accomplish anything that you want. Anything you set your mind to do, you could do. And that way, they'll believe that and they'll be able to accomplish uh, things which uh, uh, children uh, can do. Okay, number six. Thou shalt teach by example. So I think uh, this certainly plays into our responsibility as Jews to teach our children about, about Torah, about faith, and the like. If you are enthusiastic about Judaism, they probably will be as well. If you complain, oh, the prayer takes so long. The rabbi's speech is, it went 15 minutes. What are we going to do? Shabbos, what a hassle. Could we, I hate clearing off the table. All these things that we complain about, we're actually showing our children how to behave. And they model themselves after us. And if we are not enthusiastic about Torah, about Judaism, likely they won't. And if we have, we exhibit bad character, it's possible that our children will just follow the way we, the example that we set for them. And children are very perceptible and they're very sensitive uh, to uh, their environment. The way you speak, the way you act, the way you interact has an enormous impression on your children. If you, I know we have, my brother and I have an older brother who like would randomly start dancing with his kids and pull out music and start playing, like just so upbeat and so positive about life. And their children, they, they, they follow that. And you know, if you're morose and you bring the office home and everything, you know, you're always sad and you're always frowning, it's possible your kids won't have that same zestful life and zestful attitude towards life that we want our children to have. So again, you teach by example. Sometimes things are difficult, but you know what? Just because you have a difficult life, it doesn't mean that you have to do that for your children. Your children are most likely going to emulate you in everything, most likely. And therefore, what the example you set should be one that you want them to follow. Now, I think there is actually a, um, there's a, a counter to this. You see sometimes uh, parents 
that excel in certain areas. And based upon this principle, well, children should follow, right? That's what you would think. And somehow the children are the exact opposite. And that seems to be problematic. How is it possible that a parent is so successful? They're an exemplar of, let's say, never missing a minion. Some people are like that. They never miss praying in shul. Never. And their kids, pff, like they show up in shul sometimes, whenever. Whenever, whenever it works out with their schedule. And you kind of wonder, how is it possible that a parent who was so out of this world, as such a paragon of this particular area, their children flounder so completely in the opposite direction? And I think that the opposite is likely to happen because the reason why the child is likely to emulate the parent is because the child loves the parent. So because the child loves the parent, and typically the, the girl, the daughter, looks up to her mom, adores the mom, idolizes the mom, wants to be like the mom. And similarly for a son to a father. That is typical. It's not always, but it's quite typical. And therefore, they say, oh, my, my dad did this. I'm going to do the same thing. And that's why parenting, a lot of it is about teaching by example. But suppose the child doesn't love the parent. They hate the parent. And therefore, every example the parent sets, it's actually the example of what the child is going to do the opposite of. Because they don't have anything to do. They want to be at all like their parent. And therefore, quite ironically, the thing that the parent excels at is the thing the child is likely to be terrible at because they find the parent's example is what not to do, not what yes to do. So thus, if you don't have a loving relationship and a close relationship with your child, this is not going to work. And maybe it's better for you to do the opposite. Do bad things. And that way your child will excel because they're going to do the exact opposite. I'm not suggesting to do that, but maybe. Okay, number seven. Thou shall discipline and demand with consistency. So this is sort of like a gray area. And that is like how many rules do you make and how many rules don't you make? I think that's somewhere in the middle. I think if you try to regulate every aspect of a child's life, it's not the right thing to do. They need to be a child. They need to have the freedom and they have to have flexibility and that they're children and children do things that are that are that are uh, age appropriate and that's okay but i know my mother was always this was a principle i heard from my mother a lot and that is whatever you whatever rules you do set make sure that they're actual rules stick by them and be inflexible if if you lay a line in the sand then if there's a red line then it has to be a red line because otherwise your efficacy as a parent is challenged. If you're wishy-washy about whatever rules you do set, then there, then there's no rules. And of course, we don't want to have no rules. We want to have some rules. We want to have rules that allow the child to thrive as a child and to be a child, but also to keep, keep within a certain framework. And therefore, if you demand everything, that's not reasonable. They're going to break some stuff and you can't punish everything. Whereas if you regulate nothing, then it's just chaos and anarchy. Instead, what you do is you have a few rules, but when you may lay the law, lay down the law, you have to follow it to the nth degree because otherwise your status as your world, word having meaning and, and, and being real is questioned. So that, that's kind of the, the middling uh, balance where you make few rules, but those rules you stick by 100% and there's no negotiation. It's set in the sand. And that way the child learns that, okay, daddy's word, mommy's word, it matters. They don't regulate everything. Whatever they do regulate, Whenever they do make a firm rule, they stick by it. Number eight, thou shalt collaborate with thy partners. We have partners in parenting. The Talmud tells us that every child, every human is composed of three partners. The father, the mother, 
and the Almighty. And I think that in our parenting, it's not us versus the world. It's not individual father versus the world, the mother versus the world. It's a team. It's a team effort. And as parents, we're told to collaborate, partner with our collaborators. And I think certainly parents need to be aligned in what they want for their child. If one parent wants one thing, the other parent wants the other thing, they should duke it out amongst themselves. But it's way better to have one flawed strategy than to have opposing strategies. So therefore, parents should be unified in their approach of how they treat their children, to track them, to monitor them, to assess them, to strategize and plan solutions together. Of course, part of that is to have a happy and harmonious home. The child thrives in a positive and safe environment. If the parents are bickering, if the parents are fighting, do that behind closed doors. The child's essence, their identity is threatened when they see their parents fighting with each other. Therefore, keep it out of their view if needed. But in addition, it's not just your spouse that's your partner, it's the Almighty. And I've heard people say that really all of parenting boils down to 10% tactic and 90% prayer. And that's because ultimately, like we said in the beginning, the Almighty and the child themselves, they're the the ones who are going to decide the fate of the child. And therefore, and the way we could try to intercede on, on the child's behalf is by praying for them. And we should pray every day. Every day we should pray for each one of our children. Uh, that's, I think, the basics of, of, of parenting because the Almighty has all the abilities and all we need to do to get a seat at the table to decide what he's going to do with our children is to ask and to ask by prayer and ask by consistent prayer. The Talmud of the Book of Matos tells us that uh, when a Jew kills accidentally, they are sent to a city of refuge. They, they have to go to exile. They have to leave their town and move uproot to move to a different town. And they only are allowed to leave the exile when the high priest dies, when the Kohen Gadol dies. And the question is, what is the connection between someone who kills accidentally being forced to go into exile, into the city of refuge, and the high priest? What's the connection? And the Talmud says, the high priest is responsible for accidental deaths. Why? He should have prayed for his generation. The high priest is the spiritual leader of the entire Jewish nation. Therefore, because we are all his constituents, any accidents that happen in in the whole Jewish world, they fall at his feet. He's responsible. And therefore, when he dies, because he's really the cause of this uh, tragedy, therefore, everyone goes free. Now, what that means is that every, uh, every leader is responsible to pray for the well-being of their constituents. Therefore, if you're a rabbi, you have to pray for your students. If you're a teacher, you have to pray for your, pray for your pupils. If you're a parent, you have to pray for your children. If you're a teen, you got to pray for all your subjects. Wh- whoever you are a leader of, it's your responsibility, according to the Torah, to pray. And certainly, with our with regards to our children, we should pray for them every single day. Number nine, thou shalt not parent with negative character. Don't make your parenting an arena to display your own negative character. And this is an item that my grandfather used to harp on frequently. He says a lot of parenting is parents displaying their negative character. How so? You see the neighbor's kid, so respectful, so put together, straight A's, so neat, hairs nicely. And your kid is, is, is a wild animal, runs around, fails in school, speaks back to you, all kinds of problems. And therefore, you're actually motivated by envy with how you respond to your child, or God forbid, anger, 
or God forbid, revenge. There's so many different ways that bad character can creep into the way we parent. And we have to realize that if we're going to parent, our interactions with our children have to be oriented around what is best for the child and not what is an outlet for me to give uh, my aggression or to let up some steam or to take revenge, God forbid, to have anger, to have envy or the like. And therefore, I think this is where it gets a little difficult if other people are watching you. Your kid does something really bad and everyone's looking at you. So you feel like you're motivated now by, oh gosh, I don't want them to judge me. So you lay it down on your child. What did you do? And that's that's not fair to the child. Uh, just because you're suffering, because other people are judging you, it doesn't mean you have to – why do they need to suffer? Uh, they, they don't need to be embarrassed publicly because of, of your shame. So it's kind of hard. You have to kind of swallow your pride. Who cares what your friends think – well, your friends. But who cares what other people think about it? You have to do what's best for your child in that particular situation. There is a concept in Judaism called Tsar Gidl Bonim, the pain of raising children. Perhaps we can postulate that the reason why it's painful to raise children, because the only way to do it effectively is to improve our character. And of course, improving your character is painful, and therefore raising children effectively is painful. And finally, the 10th of the Ten Commandments of Parenting, thou shall not be obstinate. There's a certain way to parent, which is called, what I call it, the fly in the window syndrome. You, sometimes you see a, a fly, it's convinced that there's open air, but really there's a window. But the window is so nice and clean that it is just assumes that it's right there. So it keeps on flying into the window until it dies. It doesn't realize that it's hitting this invisible blockade that can't explain it. I think sometimes uh, with parenting, there is a tendency to kind of get into a certain mode and to not change it, even if it's not working. And just keep on flying your, keep on smashing your head into the wall, keep on flying into the window, into the window, and to be totally inflexible and totally obstinate towards the realities. And I think what doesn't work, if it's not effective, you have to try something else. Sometimes you collaborate with your partners, you come, you, you're trying to work with the best interests of the child, you're trying to tailor your educative and pedagogical methods in a way that's fitting the child's personality, and just, it's just not working. You know what? Try something else. It's okay. Maybe you, maybe you got, maybe you got it wrong. Maybe whatever. Maybe it just wasn't a good idea. Uh, or maybe it's not the right time for such a tactic to work. Whatever it is, try something else. My wife and I have a thing that we say that sometimes, you know, even though, thank God we have five children. So our house is uh, plenty. There's lots of activity and excitement there already. But sometimes we say, you know what? Maybe we should buy this kid a puppy. Yeah, some kids need a puppy and that'll help them. Sometimes you have to try something else. Maybe it's a goldfish. Let them have a goldfish. Let them, whatever it is, just be, be open-minded to the possibility that whatever you have in place is not the best. It's not working. You don't have to try it again and insist that it should work and try to brute force it to work because you know what? Maybe try something else and that's okay. Don't be obstinate. My uh, hope and prayer is that all of us take some of these lessons that, again, come from my grandfather. They're not my own. They come from the Torah. But I think they're good ideas and uh, use them effectively to have our children flourish and shine in the best way possible. And uh, good luck in all your pedagogical efforts. And uh, thank you for greeting me so warmly. And if there's any questions that I could add, uh, there's an open floor. Uh, anything that anyone wants to share or add or contribute to the discussion, 
please feel free to do so.